The metaverse is emerging as the next big technology platform and promises to be the next frontier for human experiences on the internet. Into the Metaverse covers companies, technologies, and trends that are bringing these promises to life. Join creator and host Jonathan Ross Friedman, founder and CEO of SuperSocial, as he interviews the brilliant minds that are building, shaping, and investing in the Metaverse. Welcome to episode 15 of This Week in the Metaverse. Joining me today is guest co-host Jonathan Stringfield, whom we actually hosted on the podcast a couple of months ago. Jonathan is currently the VP of Global Business Research and Marketing at Activision Blizzard, previously was the Director of U.S. Marketing Insights and Analytics at Twitter, a Manager of Measurement Solution at Facebook, and before that was at Nielsen for six years. Jonathan also recently published a new book called Get in the Game, which we are encouraging everyone to go and get one. We've got a lot of ground to cover this week, so I'm going to get right into it. Uh, three topics for the week. As you know, we cover three topics every week. First, we're going to talk about investments into avatar-focused ventures. This week, we've seen an announcement on two deals that are noteworthy. The first one is InWorld AI, which raised $50 million to populate games and the metaverse with smart characters. The second one is Ready Player Me, which is a cross-game metaverse avatar platform that allows users to explore virtual worlds with one consistent identity. And the company has closed a 56 million funding round led by Andresen Horvitz. The second item we're going to talk about is reported by Bloomberg. Xbox's chief uh, Phil Spencer hopes for fewer exclusive titles by Xbox and would like to see more interoperability among consoles in the future. Great topic. We're going to dig in to get Jonathan perspectives as well. And then we'll finish with news from The Sandbox, the blockchain-based platform of virtual worlds that aspires to become an open metaverse, which has launched this week its Alpha Season 3 with 90 new metaverse experiences and more than 100 hours of gameplay that's available to users. But before we dig in, two disclaimers. First one, all opinions shared by Jonathan today on the episode are absolutely his own personal views. And the second one is everything discussed here is not a financial advice. The podcast is strictly educational, hopefully entertaining, and is not investment advice or a solicitation to buy or sell any assets or to make any financial decisions. So moving that aside, Jonathan, so great to have me you with me today. Awesome. Yeah, so let's start with item one, again. investments into not one, but two avatar-focused ventures, in-world AI and Ready Player Me. A few notes on, on both of these. First, starting with in-world AI, as reported on VentureBeat, the company's idea is to populate games with smarter computer-controlled characters so that players can have longer conversations with them and feel like the world is much more immersive. The company was actually started a year ago by conversational AI pioneers Ilya Gelfenbin, Michael Ermolenko and Kilian Gibbs, who aim to bring richer social interaction of smarter computer controlled characters to 3D virtual world. The company uses advanced AI to build generative characters whose personalities and thoughts, memories and behaviors are designed to mimic the deeply social nature of, of human interaction. And they are backed by a myriad of great funds, among them Section 32, Intel Capital, who co-led the round, Founders Fund, Kleiner Perkins, Beatcraft Ventures, Microsoft M12 Fund. There's a lot of good folks over there that have backed the company. Um, and, and I'm quoting from the VentureBeat article from one of the co-founders, Gilfenbein, who says, the big difference is that we are focused on immersive realities, meaning like games, the metaverse, and some non-gaming environments like corporate training and virtual event. 
He also said in an interview with Gamesbeat that these worlds are developing fast, but maybe not as fast as we all would like them to do. And then lastly, kind of in contrast to the OpenAI model, which is the open research AI platform that was co-founded by Elon Musk, in-world AI has around 20 different machine learning models in charge of different aspects of the personality for a character. An orchestration model manages them all. Jumping quickly to Ready Player Me, which is the other story, it's a cross-game metaverse avatar platform that allows users to explore virtual worlds with one consistent identity. The company has seen success with its cross-platform metaverse approach and actually now have more than 3,000 game and app companies using its avatar system. Um, backed by some notable investors, Anderson Horowitz, Dave Bazuki, CEO and founder of, of, of Roblox, Justin Khan, co-founder of Twitch. And really the clients that they have go across Web2, Web3, already integrating into multiple virtual world platforms like VRChat, Spatial, Somnium, etc. And as a side note, we're actually going to bring the founder and CEO of the company, Timu, into the podcast in the next couple of months. And so, you know, all of you, our listeners, have heard so many times we talk about the, on the podcast on the fundamental promises of, of the emerging metaverse uh, with the importance of Avatar, through which we will be essentially expressing our personalities as people in 3D virtual worlds. And here we have two companies that are using technology to make the creation of human-based avatars and AI avatars more accessible to developers. Jonathan, your thoughts. <laughs> I mean, I have a lot, right? So, I mean, folks that, you know, first of all, I mean, it's, it's a chunky topic in general. Secondarily, you know, as, as you recall from our previous conversation, the types of questions that I find most interesting about the metaverse and, and developments going into it are the ones that are more kind of human oriented, right? So when you're talking about avatars, right, or the creation of virtual beings, right? Like that's probably not the term they use, but let's, let's use that for now. Like you are talking intrinsically about like, okay, something that has to do with human identity or the extent to which that we interact with something else that we want to believe has things like us, like some sort of, you know, mirror version of ourselves. So. All of those are, you kind of have a lot of interesting aspects to it, but also share the commonality that because they are so focused on the human aspects of it, they're very, very messy. So when you take the example of something like in-world AI, that in abstract, like from the furthest view out, what they're trying to solve for is something that's very valuable, right? If you read some of the, the background on their mission and what have you, they make this claim that's true that pre-scripted NPCs right, is, is just like not scalable. So you see this in games today, right? Like as an example, I'm playing Cyberpunk right now and the CD Projekt Red has done an awesome job in terms of making Night City, setting this game like very immersive. And if you do things, the characters react, but you can kind of guess how they're gonna react because there's only so many things they can do because there's still only so many things that you can program for. Um, in the same way that like, you know, oh, I got, you know, took an arrow in the knee and now I'm an adventure became like this big meme in Skyrim because like, again, the AIs were just kind of scripted to go through these the same general comments. So all of that good. I think where things could get a little messy is, you know, the, the utilization of machine learning and what is actually going to populate what comes out of it, right? So machine learning isn't magic, right? <laughs> like it, and it sure as hell isn't human cognition, despite that there was like earlier was the summer or, early, or just a couple months ago, like there was that Google engineer that thought like Lambda had reached cognition, right? But for the most part, these, they're just kind of fairly sophisticated chatbots. And the issue is that, you know, on the one hand, machine learning is kind of the subset of AI in general, or some people kind of believe it's not even truly like AI research and abstract, 
but it's like it's statistical models, right? Like it has a basis in like generalized linear models from statistical analyses. And what I often, you know, talk with folks that don't have background in, in analytics is that we look at things like statistical models and we believe them to be exact because it entails mathematics. But that's not how this math works, right? Like statistics is about error and variability and making the best guess at something, which is essentially what an ML is. It's taking a lot of input data and making a best guess for an output. Great. The question is, what are you putting in? Because the other truism that comes from most analytics is that it's garbage in, garbage out. Now, to be clear, I'm not accusing in, you know, in-world AI of that. Like, I'm sure they have an extremely sophisticated system. But you've seen where chatbots tend to go awry when some of the input that goes into them is human, is like it picks up the biases and the nastiness of human. This gets reinforced in the models and so on and so forth. So, like, long and short, it, it's interesting in insofar that it solves one problem, but it opens up a host of potential others that you know, depending on what's feeding into it, the output is going to be unexpected. And that's entirely the point, but maybe not unexpected in the way we want. And then you get to kind of even more interesting ancillaries of like, sure, we might have a lot of data that exists about how you and I interact as humans in the real world. But if it's a fantasy world or whatnot, like how do we train that data? Where do we get the inputs for that? Again, I'm sure they have very sophisticated answers for it, but like, it starts to open up. The You've touched upon so many things. First, there's the whole notion of one of the criticism that there's been about AI is that, okay, once again, software built by white male engineers. So the notion of diversity, how do we make sure that what is being built in the tools? And one thing about in-world AI, they, they're obviously building a, a set of tools that, that developers and studios will be able to use, which is on a one hand, incredible, incredible and fascinating because here is yet another company that is going to help, quote unquote, make these developer developer tools using AI in the subset of avatar and characters available to potentially millions of millions of developers. That is also very scary. I think the question is, how do we do these type of incredible technological um, challenges that companies like InWorld AI, who has been backed by really some of the most prominent investors in, in the world of software technology and entertainment, how do we make sure that there is a responsible way of, oh, as you democratize the power of technology and making it available, what are going to be their guardrails? <clears throat> what are going to be the parameters of what's allowed, what's not allowed? How do we make sure that it's going to enable diversity? And I think all of those questions are important, especially because if this is really going to be available as a tool for thousands and millions of potentially developers and creators in the metaverse, which is great and promising, and, and there's a lot of potential for economic prosperity, how are we going to deal with those challenges? So I, I think you're raising some great points. And I know that there was another point that you wanted to touch upon, which I think is a subset of a news item that happened with avatars this week that I think is really interesting. So I wanted you to call it out. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny that we're, we're talking about this prospect of using ML, ML to create natural language for a given environment. And you know, there, there's a lot of different applications and projects that are going on that, you know, kind of entail that, that same general idea. The one that, that kind of came up this week that I've been thinking a lot about is there was this kind of a lot of fanfare around the first AI rapper signed by a major label called FN Mecca. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But then quickly there was backlash that, you know, well, what this essentially was amounting to was cultural appropriation because it gets down to what you just said. It was essentially 
a bunch of white guys who built this, but then trained what the songs would be about based upon rap music. But a AI doesn't have the lived experience of the folks that were creating that music, right? Like about oppression from the state and racial you know, biases and things like that. So you'd get this AI speaking about it and it was very offensive, right? By mere the fact that it's like, okay, this, this, there's, this is just basically technological cultural appropriation. So that's where things in my mind go, obviously really bad, but then the opportunity space from really bad to just kind of mildly offensive is pretty big, right? And that's what gets to what you were speaking about that. What are the guardrails that can be put into place to moderate this? Because again, you're talking about a project who have, who's really very smart people who obviously have a lot of experience in terms of these models and AI research and really powerful minds. But as this becomes a tool for others, one, you want to make sure that they're not dabbling in something that unintentionally makes something offensive or worst case scenario, they use it specifically to make experiences that are inherently offensive and twist the intent of your model. Because again, we are fundamentally just talking about what amounts to statistical models. And these will always be in some way influenced by either the folks that created them or to a certain degree, how they get interpreted by the system. And Which is a great springboard from that more AI challenges and, and maybe just to close the loop on that point. AI and machine learning are obviously going to play an important role in the evolution of the metaverse for a bunch of different reasons, anywhere from the infrastructure to the ability to have smarter cloud services that make it even more efficient and cost-effective to build virtual world, maintain virtual world. And of course, all the way to non-player characters, AKA NPCs, where they're going to deterministically be opportunities to reimagine how these characters are being created and what type of stories they say. So this is not the end of the conversation. It's a big topic and it's great to see a company like InWorld AI taking the forefront of that evolution. They're definitely not the last one and we're going to keep an eye on that. But switching gears to talk a bit about Ready Player Me, which is a different story and a different modality. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Ready Player Me story. The company have been around actually for eight years in different variations and already only in the last couple of years picked up with their avatar creation and they want to build the really a, an interoperable avatar system that everyone will be able to use to create your avatar. So Jonathan, your thoughts on the company? Yeah, it's interesting to think about the history of what that company has evolved from. And again, I'm not going to do it justice any which way, shape or form, but realistically what it was around was, again, similarly using analytical models to analyze faces to then map them onto digital spaces. Right now, that has a lot of applications across a variety of different industries, but obviously they're finding quite a wellspring of interest as we're talking more and more about the digitalization of our identities, right? So talk about not necessarily being the right time at the right place, but being well positioned to take something that you've been working on and really apply it to this new emerging world. But what's always funny when I look at the mission of the company and, and what have you, and, that, and by the way, I'm going to take like an intentionally super cynical take that I don't necessarily believe in, but just to put it out there as a conversation point that here too, if you look at their mission statement, they're they kind of state that we believe in multiple worlds, like open metaverse, which again, not controversial. I think a lot of folks believe in that direction, not the wall garden model. And we want you to be able to traverse it with your avatar. So, okay, I'm on board. Now that's super cynical take, but again, I don't necessarily believe in, but just putting it out as a discussion point is that, okay, so you believe that we shouldn't decentralize the worlds, but you do want to decentralize the identity. And that's the part that you want to keep. So in other words, like taking the real potential honeypot, which is the you, right? Like how you represent yourself and keeping that semi-centralized, which again, I don't believe that's really what they're trying to do to go around this kind of decentralized world. So it's interesting that 
one way or another, you're still looking at a role where you're gelling on conformity that best case is they're really just trying to land on a technological standard that others can adopt and have it be open sourced or what have you. And then cool, we could obviously talk for hours about the need for standards and the formalization of that in the metaverse. But the area where I find it interesting is that it also tends to fall into this assumption that as we're traversing across these worlds, I want to be me, right? Like I want to have an avatar that looks like me, that I can put different clothes on and there's branding and I can get digital items and what have you, but ultimately it's myself. And then moreover that I want to be myself in every one of these worlds. And I don't know if that's necessarily true. And again, I'm sure this is something they think about. And I'm sure that at some point they'll have outfits that change you from a human to a squid or whatever to be able to move across all these worlds. But I think this is where we continue to find this interesting truism across a lot of the technologies that are being built. And we'll get to this again when we talk about Sandbox and what's going on over there, is that there's this tendency to take our world, the things that we know here, and just put them in a virtual world and be like, cool, that's how it should be. But should it? Those are the questions I think need to be antagonized a little bit more because, again, there's a very real world where my identity, I want it to be as multifaceted as I, I think you're making a great, a really important to. point. And what I would say, what I would add, building on top of what you said, is that, first of all, we're very early in the journey. And I think we have a very, a lot of people, maybe even most people, majority of people, have a very, a certain perception of what manifesting ourselves and our personality through an avatar actually means. And we've also seen other companies like Genies who essentially are working on a different vertical with celebrities and stars, but it's, it's really that. I'm gonna look in the virtual world like I look in real life. It's just gonna be funner, cooler, more magical, but it's still me. <clears throat> and actually in one of the things that, <clears throat> in one of the podcasts where I was talking about avatars, I, I believe that there's gonna be a proliferation of identities by one individual. And I think there are going to be imagination and innovative ways of how people want to express themselves that potentially has nothing to do with the way you look in real life, potentially has nothing to do with who you are in, in, in IRL. And I think this is where, to me, the boundary stretches way beyond just manifesting ourselves one particular avatar identity that we carry with us. Although I do believe, <clears throat> I do believe that there is value in at least on a vision perspective of the company, that they're interoperable layer where I can connect my avatar or even multiple avatar identities into several platforms, which I think is probably a big part of their story if you think about them positioning themselves as an enabler uh, on the identity piece of an open metaverse. Right. And I mean, so I think to the first point, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this the last time, right? That like, that already exists. Like we do that just in very subtle ways, right? Maybe not these days because the pandemic or what have you, but I don't know, let's turn back the clock 10 years, how I go to work and perform my identity when I go to an office is different than how I operate and perform my identity when I'm at home. So there's a lot of sociology about this, right? Like it's very basic. It's like the golf mini in front stage or this concept of foci that like I have very specific groups of individuals and ways that I comport my identity by merit of whether it's my buddies that I hang out with the bar versus my kids versus my colleagues versus my boss or whatever. So like we do this, right? There is no such thing as a centralized identity as us as a person. It's all about identity performances. So now if we were to take that same concept and again, map it onto a world where how we're represented, the physicality of it, the appearance of it, as multifaceted as the performance, 
Well, that, that's where it gets interesting, right? So like, that's the stuff that I find exciting that if you're to think about that, this is something that can free expression for folks in a way that like couldn't before, because in terms of our physicality, there's like only so much we can do at any given point, but in, in a world or worlds or a virtual construct where virtually anything's possible, well, great, the rules can be rewritten. So that's where it, again, like really leaning that concept that let's not be limited by merit of how we're operating today, but augmenting what we already do, like that feels right. So that's where I think there's going to be potentially like this almost like wellspring of like, if the metaverse comes along and really formulates in the way that we expect that it's going to be like this really interesting human experiment in terms of how we continue to communicate and 100% fully agree great points technology. Uh, and fantastic timing to move into item number two so as reported by Bloomberg Phil Spencer Xbox chief literally Xbox CEO I, I think there is a title like that Xbox CEO uh, hopes to see fewer exclusive titles published by Xbox game studios and would like to see more interoperability among consoles in the future. And so, Jonathan, I wanted to talk a bit about the importance of interoperability in consoles, specifically and metaverse more broadly, but we can definitely position this point more about consoles and, and, and what role, whatever you're comfortable sharing, Microsoft Xbox can play in that future. Per usual, be very careful to caveat what I'm saying. So I'm not going to speak specifically. So one, not speaking from my official position at any job, and then also not even speaking specifically about Microsoft's Phil's interview or anything like that. Broadly from a gaming perspective, one of the things that I have consistently said is that one of the leading things that is really going to continue to push gaming's entertainment medium to continue to be at the front of culture is the fact that gaming experiences will be divorced from the gaming devices. And there's nothing super profound about that. Like you see it virtually everywhere. Like this is essentially where cloud is becoming this potentially dominant platform in gaming and will enable us in theory with a lot of things that need to happen, inclusive of advances in the commercial internet, advances in things like 5G, realizing the speeds that we want and so on and so forth, like tons of caveats. But assuming we get to that point, well, all right, now we're getting to a world where I don't need an expensive gaming P PC. And then I also don't need a console because it doesn't matter. I can play a game experience on my dumb monitor or on my TV. And indeed, I believe it was Samsung launched this gaming center where you can play games on just a television without a console by merit of using cloud. So on the one hand, Sure, there's going to be, I think, this ongoing drive for focusing on the game experiences because consoles just might not matter. Now, whether or not experiences are going to be in different ecosystems or whatnot, that's a different matter, right? Is it going to be the case where you can only access them through certain services? Is it, is it then going from consoles to more subscription models or whatnot? Like, who knows? Now, that's probably some of a topic for someone who's smarter than I am as it pertains to, like, game economies or whatnot. But then, I think, to your point, like, it starts to then get to how does this impact how we think about metaverse experiences and whatnot that one things like the capability of having advanced 3d graphics and experiences on virtually any device that has a screen whether it be a vr headset or what have you that's potentially going to be one of these powerful technological you know intermediaries and then secondarily as the other again point that i really hammer home when talking about virtual worlds as they're constructed now and the intersection of gaming or whatnot there's just got to be content there right there has to be an experience worthwhile or it doesn't matter again we'll return to this point momentarily when we talk to the talk about sandbox 
So if you look at it through that same lens, then yeah, like we're getting to a world where more access to experiences that are more technologically advanced through a multitude of devices, that's very meaningful for the world of gaming. That's very meaningful towards how- So many great points. I would add that exactly where you finished, which is it starts with games and it starts with gaming, but I have so many conversations with either people who want to join Super Social or brand partners and really walking them through what at least I believe that where we're heading, which is obviously it's going to be around games are part of it, but there is going to be a huge difference, which I think is an unlock or certain paradigm shift with understanding the distinction between games and between play. Many more people play in the world and we've always played mm -hmm. games in the context of video games has a very clear connotation to majority of the world population. And you know, I believe that at some point there's going to be an inflection point where it becomes so much more about the experience in which some of which is in, in, in which some cases are going to be around games, but majority I believe is not going to be around games, but might include a lot of play. And with that ex to that extent, having interoperability and moving off the form factor, I think is going to be a critical success element for the emerging metaverse because we're talking about it as a device agnostic. You're going to be essentially able to access ideally metaverse experiences and virtual experiences from any device at any point at any time. And I like to use this dumb example with people. And I say, when we have autonomous Teslas running around the road, what do you think people are going to do inside the Tesla? <laughs> they're going to access the metaverse and they're going to access it on their phone or through the touch devices on the Tesla or the windows themselves. Everything is going to be surrounded by giving us gateways into uh, the metaverse uh, for multiple form factors. And so I think that's why it is so interesting that Microsoft and I'm sure other technology companies who make devices, if it's Sony and PlayStation, are slowly and gradually are going to want to move off the dependency on the console, which you know I think is a really fantastic point, Jonathan, to make. Um, and, and then another thing I would add is interoperability is complex, and no one really yet is fully understanding what it's going to look like, why is it important. Everyone talks about it as if it's going to happen tomorrow. But I think it is important that there is a conversation, especially by big technology companies who understand that interoperability needs to be part of a key enabler of a true metaverse. The question is, how is that interpretation is then translated to a business strategy, especially by companies who are worth <clears throat> billions of billions and trillions of dollars? And that is also something that is to be seen. Indeed. And, and, and again, and it, that it's another place where it could come down to content. It matters less to me in my business building virtual worlds that you're doing it through a device that I'm making, but that you're just in the world by merit of some monetization that I attach to it. Whether, again, maybe it's the billboards or sandboxes going the way in terms of virtual real estate or so on and so forth is a way to monetize it. So if we think about the, the trajectory of gaming and going towards a world where, again, I believe in a long enough timeline, we're going to get device agnostic, like that is almost has to be an inevitability, right? For any kind of metaverse experience that like you and I can plug into the same relative virtual worlds, whether I'm making a headset by whatever, Samsung, and you're using one by Sony or, or whomever. And then it's less about the access points and more about the experience that, that we find ourselves in. And I, I think to the, the point again about content and the experience that's within it, I was actually wrote a little bit about this on my Substack that we saw the selfie that like 
put up and everyone's like, wow, that looks crappy. And you're right, like it does. Now, again, if we're to give him a lot of credit, right, that probably points to a world where he's just optimizing for scalability, right? That of course it looks low fidelity because he wants this experience to work on a ton of different devices. And that is thoroughly constrained by the end user device that long and short, Oculus headsets aren't that powerful. Now, I mean, they're powerful, but not powerful enough to make something that, that's like 3D photorealistic and what have you. So in a world where I'm no longer relying on the end user device, okay, it gets a little bit more interesting. But then moreover, again, you can get away with creating an immersive experience that isn't necessarily photorealistic so long as there is an experience to draw them in. And again, whether that's a video game or play as you put it or what have you, these all psychologically help us establish like that sense of immersion, that spatial presence, those thought processes that our cognition goes into when we're trying to literally imagine ourselves in these world and sure, things like super realistic visuals and VR headsets and whatnot, all of that helps, but it's not necessarily what the only thing. Like having just an experience that pulls us in is that much more meaningful. So again, as we're thinking about what is going to be paving the way for making a use case for regular humans to go in these virtual worlds, because it's a lot of technology people talking about a lot of technology stuff. And I keep reminding folks, we are not regular humans, right? We're not the average consumer. We're kind of different and into this stuff no matter what. All those other folks need a reason for it. And what that means is there has to be something to it that kind of draws them in. And that may make the great timing to jump like into that, item number three, which I think talks about more about these type of things, right? The graphical fidelity and the content and experiences and users and why people would use something. So let's finish with item three for today. And I love the, the depth that we took with the conversation on, on the first two items. And I think this is not going to be any different. Let's talk about the sandbox. As folks who, who know or don't know, the sandbox is a blockchain-based platform of virtual worlds that aspires to essentially become an open metaverse. The sandbox launched this week, Alpha Season 3, with 90 new metaverse experiences and 100 hours of gameplay that's available for users. While folks like Mark Cuban are dismissing virtual lands as real business or, or real investment proposition. The Sandbox COO, Sebastian Bourget, stated that more than 75% of the Sandbox land has, has owners who are actually building stuff on it. And as reported by VentureBit, a lot of great uh, shout outs to, to the VentureBit folks today, great writing. The company expects season three to surpass its previous record of 350,000 active users. The Sandbox is one of the leading advocates of Web3 or, or the promise kind of, of, of a user owned internet where basically we own our assets, interoperability again, and so on and so forth. And really what the Sandbox is promoting is an avatar-centric experiences in this alpha season three with brands like The Walking Dead, Steve Aoki, Rabbids, uh, Sueco, Warner Music, Care Bear, Smurfs, Atari, Snoop Dogg, and Deadmau5. And, and there's, they claim that there's a, a total of 22 such brands that are opening experiences in season three where fans can interact with the brands and create their own branded user-generated content. And so, Jonathan, while it's terrific to see 90 experiences launched in the Sandbox, Platforms like Roblox, which is, yes, not NFT-based, and people will call it Web 2.0 metaverse type of platform. Having said that, Roblox does have millions, I don't know how many, but maybe more than 40 millions of different experiences that are available to now its audience of 60 million daily active users. I have so much to say about this topic, but what are your thoughts on the news from Sandbox? How can they propel their platform, if at all, to truly compete with more established platform and, and, and even not compete, like really 
cement its position, not just by PR and brand, but also with the size of the user base and, and building an economic system that would justify a term open metaverse? I think looking at that framework of what's going to propel them is helpful, right? So let's look at the news, like just at face value. So they're making a new season with more content. So I think they're getting the note. Initially, I think if you look at Decentraland, Sandbox, and a few of these other projects, there's almost like this implicit, if you build it, they will come mentality because you can buy stuff and exist. And that's not really how it works. You're going to get the early speculators and, and what have you. But again, what were we talking about before? Regular, normal people. <laughs> like folks that aren't investment speculators don't give a hoot about blockchain technology or open versus closed or whatnot. Believe it or not, the vast majority of normal people in the world don't really care that much about the tech. What they care about is like, is this a cool experience? Is this a cool thing that I can do? And so on and so forth. Like very basic things that we keep forgetting about. So I think this is signaling that, okay, that there's, I think some recognition that, all right, like we built it, they're not coming, needs to be a reason to come. Great. Now. What will propel them? And I think Roblox is a really good example of that, right? Like Roblox, to your point, has unfathomable numbers of hours of content, right? Like you could probably literally play on that platform forever because it's user generated and so on and so forth. On the other hand, there's more that's coming in Sandbox, but I think what's going to continue to hamstring it is that this reliance on creating value for the landowners. And if you think about this whole concept of where they're really making money. It's this very real world, some might argue antiquated, some of the cynical might even put somewhat oppressive measure of just being scarcity based land ownership. And on the one hand, like you can go the Mark Cuban approach. What the hell does that mean? Like virtual land? Like, sure. Couldn't I just make another virtual world where instead of the parcels being hundred pixels by hundred pixels, now they're 500 by 500. And don't you want to go over there and so on and so forth. We're wide open for that. But then moreover, if the focus becomes less on making a bunch of great experiences or making an open platform for great experiences, which is where Roblox really wins on making a lot of content and more about just making sure these parcels of land can generate value, you're always going to be behind Roblox because they aren't necessarily weighed down by that need to make the land or whatever, or some asset valuable in and of itself. The value that they're going to extract is individuals using the platform and individuals creating within it. So by merit of it being tied to a speculative asset, they have an anchor. Sure, like they're, they're, they're doing the work in terms of making more content, but are they ever going to be propelled to, say, a Roblox level of potential amounts of content? Yeah, and, and, and I think because they got that it's such a great argument to use the virtual land piece as a bottleneck, actually, for growth in a way, right? On the one hand, it provides a lot of quote unquote, ownership for people who hold the land. And, and I think a key question is there, which is not mentioned in the venture beat piece, and I haven't found any information is how many organizations or people actually hold the 70, the, the land, right? So 75% of landowners are actually building something, but who owns right. the land? How many organizations own the land? And I think that's also an important because we're talking about a platform that is business and with land that is likely owned by more businesses. So the question becomes how much it's open. Is it really open or is it pretty centralized and closed and it's more like an oligopoly versus a democracy? 
I mean, in, even then, if, even assuming, right, for a moment that it's actually quite a bit more distributed, which by the way, I do not think to be the case. I'd, I'd be more inclined to believe that there's actually quite a bit of it held by a small amount of individuals, as is the case with any number of blockchain-based assets, right? Like that's just kind of the truism that, that's existing right now. It's sort of fortunate. You're still in a world where, again, you're taking the model from the real world, which people hate, right? And are actively rallying against the concept of landlords and exploitive capitalism and plopping it right in a virtual world. So again, at my most cynical, I could say that you're not only committing that same little foible that we we're talking about as it pertains to like avatars and whatnot, and taking our sensibilities from the real world and putting it in the virtual world for no reason other than that's just kind of how it works without recognition of the fact that potentially this is a virtual world and therefore we don't need to be conformed to the same laws. At worst, you're just trying to, again, take the mechanisms for wealth generation, which have really caused a lot of problems for other people while creating a lot of benefit for others and really just trying to capitalize on that. And either which way, like, it's not great. So in, in that case, like, that's where I, as you might pick up, I'm, I kind of fall more in the Mark Cuban camp that like of all the propositions in Web3, this concept of land ownership is in mind the most flimsy and I think the one that's most problematic, but also one that again, Aside from all the sticky issues as it pertains to ownership and oppression and just cycles of capitalism and whatnot, it's just creatively not awesome. Like that, that we're just going to confine ourselves to this physicality of land where in theory, anything is possible. Yeah, it's like part of the promise of the metaverse, and even though in books and films like Ready Player One that are more dystopian, you still see that sort of infinity. You still see that sort of expansive world that it's infinite. And it is in conflict with what we're seeing from platform where there's a virtual land. I don't want to dismiss completely the, the achievement made. I, I do think it's great to see the sandbox launching a new season with 90 new experiences. There's a lot of great brands there. There's a lot of great companies there. And I think that's fantastic. It's great to see the activity. It's great to see the work. It's great to see studios and developers building stuff. I think we're at a stage of experimentation. Having said that, I do agree that we're seeing more and more and more, not to say that that's exactly what's happening here with the sandbox, but we are seeing more and more and more, quote unquote, yellow page. Let's put yellow page on the web because that's basically what we should do at the beginning of the internet. And I think that's fine. That's just probably part of the evolution of a new category built on top of technology. And I think that's part of what's happening. And I think what's exciting is also knowing that there are going to be things that are going to be pioneering and trailblazing and innovative and different. In my other head, as a company builder on, on the Roblox platform, and I get excited about the possibilities of the future and building those use cases that are not copycatting on basically what we do in virtual, in, in real life. And then I think also lastly, I would say in the context of Roblox as well, and I think that's a big challenge for all platforms that are trying to build quote unquote metaverse type of environments is the developer community, the developers, the creators, the studios. And one thing that is truly always and continues to be underestimated about Roblox is the extraordinary, passionate, committed, talented, devoted developer community that they have been nurturing all the way from players to creators. And I even called it out today. I released a post uh, that talks about how I assess Roblox's long-term prospects. And that's the first thing I talk about, the developer community. And I see it also as a company builder who employs developers, how passionate they are. And so just to think that, oh, it's so easy to build a developer community. I mean, look at the biggest technology companies in the world, a company like Apple, a company like Microsoft, a company like Facebook, to some extent, they all built extraordinary 
developer and creator communities that are truly, truly committed and passionate. And that takes years. That take, and you also see that in enterprise. You see that with Salesforce, with their incredible network effect of their app exchange and the platform that they built with SaaS. And so that's one thing that I still think is being underestimated, even with other companies like Fortnite Creative. It's not trivial. It's not going to be easy to build a thriving developer community in a whim. That's 100% true. And, and again, I think you're kind of hitting on what's the other important take on this is that I think folks kind of forget, right? And this actually is a piece that I wrote for VentureBeat, right? Was that the superpower of Web2 wasn't centralization. That's not why these platforms got big. That was actually an after effect, right? When they got into monetization models and relied on basically selling our attention by merit of advertising. The superpower was that they made making stuff on the internet super easy, right? Like you didn't need to be able to code HTML or whatever to make something on the web. You could go to Facebook, type it in and like, hey, I'm on the internet. And at the time that was revolutionary. And again, we forget about that. So look at the example of Roblox. What's the superpower that they bring forward? You can make stuff in a 3D environment, be it a game or otherwise, super easy. Do these other platforms do that? Or are they worried about extracting literal physical rents? based upon extracting value from scarce land. And I think that's the fundamental question that comes down to what's really gonna enable that development community because again, it's developers, but it's also everyday people that just want to eventually be able to- Excellent, important, thought-provoking question to conclude the episode with. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with me today. And this concludes episode 15 of This Always Week in the Metaverse. To get early access me. to our podcast and the letters that we write, join our Substack community and, and follow us on Twitter. And we'll put Jonathan links as well when we publish the episode. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks again, man. See you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Into the Metaverse. We hope you learned a lot and explored new aspects of the metaverse.